At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Winning a World Series isn't really a reasonable goal for a baseball team. It's a nice thing to have happen, and it's ultimately the top of the mountain. Uh, but a, a, a general manager and the head of a baseball operations department is more interested in putting a good process in place. There's somebody in Salicata's doghouse. Who is it? Yeah, anybody who would shy away from that comment. I mean, when I saw that tweet from Andy, and by the way, this is not Andy's opinion. So people who are killing him, it's, it's his reporting here. This is not on Andy. But anybody who would shy away from those comments, first of all, he wasn't being literal. If you don't win a World Series, if we don't win a World Series in three to five years, everybody's going to be fired. He was just saying what he would like to see, setting realistic, high expectations as they should be. So anybody who's afraid of that, I mean, what are you doing? What do you want him to come out and say, well, maybe we could be a 500 team for the next five to 10 years? Please, <laughs> I want to hear three to five. I want to hear we expect to win next year. That's what the expectations should should be. It doesn't mean that they have to. It doesn't mean that they're going to win. But anybody who would be afraid because he said three to five and setting high expectations to win a World Series, they won't make it in New York. And we don't want them here. So those people, you know who you are, are in my doghouse. Anthony McCarron, Sal was not the only person on this panel who was fired up by that potential reporting from Andy Martino. Yeah, Doug, I mean, I was appalled when I saw that. I mean, the idea that there are people who are putting themselves forward as GM candidates who don't want that kind of pressure, who don't want the idea that the owner wants to win. I mean, it's ridiculous. You're coming into a great situation. Look, the Mets have got some serious talent on the roster, and they've got the richest owner in the sport now. It's a dream job. Come in here, compete with the Yankees if you need a little boost there, too, because they're across town, and they're one of the premier organizations in the game. I, I really was, I, I hope they they ripped up the list with all the names on it after that, after they got that vibe from some of these guys, because it's ridiculous. They should be in it for this challenge. How, how about accept something hard? You know, everybody knows it's not that easy to win the World Series, and Steve Cohen will know it, too, and it's part of being an owner. But, I mean, if you don't want to take it on, I mean, what are you doing? Take yourself out of the running. Go home. God, get an ice cream truck. I don't know. Apparently, maybe that's <laughs> what Chris Young did. I don't know. But, uh, look, I don't understand it either. Uh, I'm with both of you guys on this. If you're scared of that, realistically, 
realistically, what I see is you're probably scared of what the media will say if you don't get there and they'll keep bringing it up. Uh, are you going to win one in three to five years? What's your plan? How are you going to get it done? Uh, you know, and if those three to five years start inching closer, you're going to get pounded for it. But look, I, I, I just I hate to say baseball's hard. You, you might win one in three to five. You might not. And I think Steve Cohen is a, a much smart enough man to figure that out and know that uh, and eventually down the road, you know, say it doesn't happen. I, I don't think anyone's job would be on the line if you went out, had some really good seasons, uh, you know, got to the World, maybe got to the World Series once and, and, and we're, we're in the playoffs three or four times out of those five years. I don't think anyone's job would be at risk. So uh, for people to say that, you know, maybe that would be keeping them from, from wanting to participate, uh, you know, in this search, that's just silly to me. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Saturday, December the 5th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, welcome in everybody to another edition of the podcast. We had a week off. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving, had a great Thanksgiving holiday. And there is some action starting to percolate a little bit. Now, the winter meetings, albeit virtually, are going to be held over the next uh, few days starting tomorrow. And that's why I'm coming to you today. This is a bit of a tweener show because who the heck knows oh, you know what these winter meetings on Zoom are really all about. I mean, I, I think this is all marketing so that MLB Network and all these other, uh, you know, different baseball-affiliated podcasts and products could go out there and, and let's talk about what may happen. You know, they have all this radio time they have to on MLB Network Radio, which I enjoy and I listen to. Uh, but you and I both know that, you know, <laughs> this is just not going to be like your typical winter meetings where we'd have a, a show and, and we'd be checking in with people from... It was supposed to be in Dallas and, and so on and so forth. So that's not going to happen. We have this tweener show. And, and before I get to what you heard in the opening with the controversy that even our friend Mike Piazza jumped into the fray on Twitter earlier in the week about winning and how winning isn't the most important thing when you're a GM and candidates being scared away by perhaps Steve Cohen putting his chips to the center of the table. I mean, we're actually going to talk in the intro here about the importance of winning. This is what goes on and what I mean I try to make this relevant this podcast. I try to make sure that you know there's a flow and it's 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 current and and, and that I give you something think, different to think about. We focus on the past, we focus on the present, we focus on the future with the prospects, but you know we try to make it relevant. We don't try to go too off the reservation where the news is going. And here I am feeling compelled to talk about and we've done this so many times. I mean, I feel like we just did this recently when when we had the you know the former Mets beat reporter Matt Eagle come on and and have that debate with me back in the summer in the midst of this just the beginning of the pandemic season uh, about the importance of winning and how rebuilds tend to be somewhat of a 
a money savings thing versus really a necessary way to get to an end result. But before I get to that, what's funny is as I was preparing for the program, I, I thought back to our last show, which is right after Robbie Cano was suspended. And I basically said during that, uh, one of the segments on that show, look, I'm not getting crazy here about the GM, the president. It's a bad time of the year for the Mets to be going out trying to find these guys. And want to just let Sandy Alderson at this point, at least for the next year, go out there and handle it. He's done it. Not my number one pick. Not exactly what I think would be the long-term situation for him. But with money and with a, a budget to make mistakes, which he has right now under Steve Cohen, it's not like you have to have a genius here. You don't need Branch Rickey. Nor did I see Branch Rickey out there with all the candidates and the names that were out there. And sure enough, almost a day or two after that podcast, that's exactly what's happening. Now, I know, is Alderson, Rico, I heard J.P. Ricciardi might be coming back in the mix. Is that exciting? But you have a foundation, like I said. And with money, and it sounds like they're going to go more the free agent route, and there is... There are free agents out there that can fit the needs that they have. We've heard James McCann's name, Trevor Bauer, George Springer, those three. And that's going to be an expensive haul, even with McCann being slightly less expensive than his counterpart there on the free agent market, JT Realmuto, would be my pick. I think the Mets could snag two out of three, and I don't think that will necessarily bust their budget long term. It may make things more complicated going into the subsequent years with other free agents like Conforto, like Syndergaard, you know, maybe, you know, Cano's contract comes back into play. But right now, I think you have a margin of error with money because of the kind of owner you have that it's not going to take the best GM in the world here to get this thing going. You don't need to tear down and have a five-year rebuild, nor is this owner into that. Not right now. I mean, eventually everybody has to reevaluate and look at where they got to go and pause, so to speak, and then move forward. Once you got rid of the cabinet, there was a cabinet, and I don't even know if they wanted to be involved in this, but once you got rid of Omar and Adam Gutridge and Brody Van Wagenen, didn't really, I mean, at that point, you were saying, Sandy, you're the guy. I mean, even if you brought somebody in now, and you've heard Billy Owen's name, a guy that, you know, is interesting, um, you know, you've heard some names, I think they're coming in, and, and ultimately, the missive is going to be, we need to land one of these big fish. And then you could work your way around that. Now, that's where... I worry a little bit about the current front office. Truth be told, I told you guys from the start, there was no way an ownership situation could be approved in November. GM, even though Sandy was was already handpicked before the fait accompli approval, which maybe not as fait accompli, but it was pretty much going to happen. There was no way you were going to build a front office in, 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 let's use a current news term, warp speed time, and be up and running with this perfect front office and still be able to put everything on pause with the free agents and the transactions in that time frame. One of the mistakes and one of the inevitable mistakes that have happened, one is a self-inflicted one, another one is nothing to do with the Mets. When they, when Sandy Alderson stepped down back in 2018, that's when the Mets should have started moving and trying to figure out what they were going to do with the front office. They had the, the three-headed monster there. They had Omar. They had Ricciardi. Um, Rico was involved in that. Not a good situation. It's a patch situation, a bad patch situation, in my opinion. They should have started talking to people back then, not waiting till October. 
Then you got a very creative hire in Brody Van Wagenen. And then Brody's in. And now you have him him and his team for two years, good, bad, or indifferent. And now you, you wipe them out. And, and at that point, I think they had a name, you know, bunch of names that if you probably put a blanket over their names or put them in a hat, anybody you picked out was going to be similar in profile. So none of that worked out. I think, and I said this on Twitter, you have to really put into consideration the lifestyle of New York, moving here, the quality of life, the future of the city. You guys don't want to hear it. Look, I'm a lifetime New Yorker. I've lived in the city, in Brooklyn. I've lived in Staten Island. I've lived in Long Island now for you know, over 15 years. I've worked in areas all over the city. I know the city pretty well. Some areas better than others. There's a lot of problems in this city. Whether you live where I live now or where I lived before, there's a lot of problems. And if you're an outsider who has a family, who has been comfortable working in an organization in a market where I don't want to say the expectations are different, but the intensity level, the media scrutiny is not to the same uh, intensity that it is here. This is a big decision because the minute you sign that contract to get that job, you're on the clock. You're going to lose your job. The guy that's currently the GM, president, or going to be the head of whatever you want to call Alderson, he lost the job. He got it back, but he lost it. He's one of the few that actually gets the job back that he lost. So these are big life-changing decisions. And all you know, just because you have a new owner with a lot of money who's charismatic on the camera and, and engaging and says all the right things, there's still a lot at play here. Chris Young, turns out he had a, a job close to home in Texas with the uh, Rangers, and now he's going to have a chance to you know, build his resume with John Daniels, a well-respected executive with uh, uh, over the history of uh, his time in Texas used to be, you know, guy grew up a Mets fan, and uh, better situation for him. Was it interesting when I heard Chris Young's name? Bright mind, played the game, uh, you know, certainly uh, knows the workings of baseball, having been in the commissioner's office. A guy that you know Sandy could work with well. I think ultimately, what I would say with any GM here. I would like them to have some sort of scouting background or playing background. That's why Billy Owens, and I, I, I encourage you to go to Mark Feinson's executive podcast. Little Google Mark Feinson, Billy Owens, and you can listen a little bit to Billy Owens on that podcast because the guy not only played the game, moved into scouting, and has really worked his way up the scouting ranks, which is uh, an underappreciated grind. Anybody will tell you. I know scouts. They are underappreciated, and they're more underappreciated now than ever before. And been in the A's front office for over two decades, has worked under Billy Bean, who's been a pioneer. Whether you like his beliefs and philosophies or not, that's a whole different situation. And he understands the, the playing side, the scouting side. He's seen how teams run with uh, you know, a very tight budget have been created, have been ahead of the curve of other organizations. He's got a lot of experiences that all fit together, in my opinion, to be a good candidate. Now, add the cherry on top, he's he's African-American, so he could be a pioneer in the sense where you add a job for an, uh, a bright, younger-ish in terms of the executive search. He's in his 40s, so he's not that young. Uh, to the mix at a time where creating opportunities for minorities is important, but he's earned it. That shouldn't even really matter. Because to me, he's not about being a minority. He's about being an interesting candidate. He could be whatever Billy Owens. I didn't even look at that part until, okay, great, this adds it on top. But in the marketing aspect and in the climate we're in, this is important. So put that out there. 
But I don't care if it's Billy Owens or someone else. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for someone. Chris Young would have fit a similar type of experience. You know, guy. These are guys that have, understand the game, that have been up through the game, and I think the game has to be pulled back to understanding what it's all about, which is not just about winning, but there is so much more than just OPS plus and WAR, and and really turning roster building into what essentially is like Stratomatic or looking at a stock portfolio. There's more to it. There is a process that incorporates a lot of those things and, and makes them much more important than they've ever been before. But you've got to understand players and you've got to understand the nuance to building a roster and the nuance into when you pick someone up. It can't just be numbers on the paper because you and I could do that. You and I could go through a non-tender list and we'll do some of that in a little bit and pick out guys and say, oh, this guy would make, look good, but we don't know anything about him. There's a couple of guys that I've looked at and I've texted a few people I know in baseball. What do you think? Oh, you know, this, you know, think about this. This is why he didn't do well here. Here's why he didn't fit into the clubhouse. You know, did you know that he has this, you know, nagging injury? Oh, no, I didn't. Well, you know, you need to be able to get all that together. A lot of between the ears and why players are the way they are and can they improve and can they incorporate any changes that are necessary, whether they're in their early part of their career or they're trying to get to some type of, of bandwidth of, of success depending on where they are, you know, a lot of it has to do with, are they capable of making the changes and uh, becoming, you know, somebody like, uh, uh, you know, think of any player that has all of a sudden, you know, Rick Reed back in the day with the Mets, all of a sudden got an opportunity and, and, and took advantage of it and really, you know, learned how to pitch in a lot of ways and became a very valuable member of the Mets during a time where they were very competitive and almost won a World Series. So, and there's all sorts of other stories. You know, Trevor Bauer, a name that we've talked about, he's improved as a pitcher using technology and understanding himself. Uh, there's so many names. I mean, we, we talked about MVP Machine. Read though, Justin Turner. You know, MVP Machine. That's a book that I've rec- I recommended anybody who listens to this podcast reads. Tells you a lot about how players improve themselves using modern technology and modern thought processes and modern ways of hitting or pitching. So do you have you have to have the capabilities. So. You need to have someone in that front office that works for Sandy that knows that. And that's my biggest concern right now is do they have – because you go to their front office page, there's nobody. There's, you know, Sandy, you know, Rico's there administratively. I know Rico's more of an administrative guy. You know, Tommy Tenoy is their head of amateur and international scouting. We know there's still the scouts there, but but they don't have Omar, a talent evaluator, in his cabinet. Brody's gone, you know, so you don't know what he was working on. I'm sure he shared some things. Adam Gutridge was their analytics guy. I have no idea what the analytics department, what's left of it. So they're making decisions on non-tenders, and they pretty much brought back everybody. I wasn't really – I was surprised that Radio was tendered a contract, but I, I guess they need outfield depth. Matt's, to me, was a no-brainer. Gonzalez may be a little bit of a surprise, but you need depth, and that's – he's depth. Uh, I was surprised with Chase and Shreve, and I think that goes back to where maybe I'm a little concerned about – this offseason, and it's inevitably going to be the collateral damage of the situation. There's never going to be a situation where you don't have a stable front office where there's not a, a fallout. At some point in 2021, when the Mets are in the midst of hopefully a very competitive and winning season, we are going to look back and we are going to see that this period of time when there was a little bit of chaos, I'll use, or stress, and I think Sandy's very good at quelling the fact that this could be 
a very chaotic situation. So is Cullen. He's saying it's not necessary to have a GM in place. We know what we're doing. Well, you're relying on Sandy Aldis who's been out of the game two years. But you're going to see there's going to be some little tiny things that are going to come out that maybe were a problem. And I think what will come out is, and I'm not saying Chase and Shreve is end-all, be-all, and very well they may go back and resign him. And very well there may be a reason why he has no interest in coming back here. We don't, we don't know all the particulars. But that's the kind of pitcher that maybe they're looking for some depth in their bullpen or they could use another arm in that bullpen or they could use some kind of backup. It's going to be a, a, a marginal, around-the-fringes type of player that because they don't have a full front office and maybe a full ability to evaluate, that's the kind of player that you're going to let walk. And then you say, ah, you know, in a normal time, maybe there would be more discussion and dialogue around said player. But... I don't know. That's totally speculation. Once, and I'll go back to it, once Sandy Alderson was appointed, the man, the guy that Steve Cohen brought in to get this thing moving when he took over his ownership group, his his own group, it's not a group, it's him, his ownership era, it's his baby. Anybody he brings in, it's on him. And he could be here maybe only a couple of years and then float off in the sunset you know, starting the process, and then whoever comes in picks up from there and makes it their baby. But th- whatever happens with the whoever he hires in the next five years, Sandy could be here all five years, he could be here two or five years, he could be engaged in all five. It doesn't matter. No matter what the level is, he started this process. This was his beginning, and he's going to be the one that's going to be judged on it. Yeah, there'll be some people he hired under him that will, will go out there. In a lot of ways, Mickey Calloway, that was a Sandy Alderson hire. Brody got blamed for it. But that was a Sandy Alderson hire. And Sandy was long gone. He had nothing to do with all the stuff that went on with Mickey Calloway and Brody Van Wagen and, and, and whatnot. And you still hear some negative things. And looking back, I supported Mickey, but he didn't do things well all the time. I don't think he got a great shake here, but different yesterday's news and you heard oh he interviewed well he was their pick and that will happen again he will pick someone for the GM job and maybe eventually a manager will be replaced not now but eventually and it will be on Alderson but here's one thing and you heard it in the opening and the fact that I'm actually talking about this drives me crazy because it is so disrespectful that in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic, when people are being locked down, when people are starving for entertainment, and when this economy and this world opens up, and it will very soon, I'm very confident on that, I don't care what anybody says, there will be baseball and there will be fans in the stands sooner than you think. Maybe not the level that we want them to be, maybe not the level that it should be, but they'll be there. The fact that there's debate on putting competitive teams on the field and the cost of cable has gone up. The cost of a ball game to take someone out has gone up tremendously. The fact that it's an investment in time to go watch a professional baseball team, a huge investment in time. If you, whether you're sitting at home on your iPad, watching on replay or highlights, going to the ballpark, you go to the ballpark, you're locking out an eight, you're basically locking out an eight, a work day. Between getting to the ballpark, depending on where you live, and getting home, it's like going to work. You might as well have it. A, it's a Saturday. You work five days a week. You work six days. Now, you're doing it for your pleasure. The fact that we're talking about 
incentivize. And that's the word. If you go to a column in The Athletic there, Ken Rosendahl talks about the imbalance. It essentially was when the uh, the day of the non-tenders. You know, Ken Rosendahl talked about the imbalance of the economic system. And it was a great column. And he, and, 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 and he, and he quotes, it was Mike uh, uh, Elias over at the Orioles GM. Ken Rosendahl quotes Elias and he says, part of our job is to operate within the economic framework of the collective bargaining agreement. Teams do that, playing entirely within the rules, but gaming a system. We get that. One that, yes, the players agreed upon through collective bargaining to their advantage. What sometimes gets lost as the part of a GM's job is also to field a competitive team for the fans, not continually looking for the least expensive way out. Players need to get paid early in their careers when they are most productive. Teams need to be incentivized to compete, not the other way around. Why are we working on a system where we need to incentivize teams to compete? You own a team... I don't expect you to go out and bleed money for the for the whole time. I understand that. And they do – there's not – when it comes to game day and the expense of running a team and payroll, and yes, they make a lot of uh, money in other ways, it, it's not the most profitable venture. Trust me. I know nobody wants to believe it. I know they think there's just so – look how much I pay. There is a ton of overhead, and it's not just payroll. These stadiums, employees, healthcare benefits, like just – Understand, anybody who runs any kind of business that's listening to this audience could, could understand and appreciate. It's expensive. Now, losses on paper and losses in real life are always two different things. But I'm not advocating every team should go out there and have a $300 million payroll. And I'm not advocating every team even needs to have $180 or $150 million payroll. But I believe every team has an obligation each season to go out there and have a goal to win as many games as possible. And even if that means you're going to be a 75-win team, there's a way, in my opinion, you could put together a 75-win team that still connects and still shows the fan base that, hey, we're going to put the best product possible on the field. Now, sometimes that might mean kids that are not ready, that are going to be part of the solution, they're going to go out there and take their licks as part of getting job training in the big leagues. You don't see that that much anymore because they don't want to pay them. And maybe that ties into what Rosenthal talks about in this uh, in this uh, article. But you, you have to have some kind of era. Every era, good, bad, or indifferent, has a character. And I have to be honest with you, you're starting to see that lost. I mean, even in the 90s when the Mets had the worst team money can buy and then they did that kind of a mini rebuild and then they... With Piazza and whatnot, they they flipped the switch to going full-out competitive. But even before that, they tried to bring in players, veterans like Olerud, uh, Rick Reed, guys that they that, that they thought had something that could make them better and compete. They didn't just say, let's, you know, Generation K failed. All right, rebuild number two, rebuild number three. Another sport, look at the Knicks. Now, there's so many other things you could get into with the Knicks and what's happened over two decades, but it's rebuild, 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 and then they don't work. You lose another opportunity to build a brand and to win and, and engage a fan base. And I tell you, it's a miracle and it's a different sport and a different environment that after 20 years that you still get an engaged fan base. I think that's starting to become a problem. I mean, one of the biggest things is getting into the Knicks, even me as a lifelong Knicks fan, it's harder. And if you're going to lose me, 
geez, could you imagine the casual kid that grew up? I mean, when I was in high school, the Knicks were great. I can only, I can't even fathom living through young adulthood. You know, you know, finally getting to watch sports on cable. I didn't have cable till I was like fifteen years old because we weren't wired in my neighborhood. And the first experience of getting to really watch sports consistently is rebuild. I mean, I'm thankful that my youth was 80s Mets, 90s Knicks, 90s Mets. And then as I became a young adult, some of the teams that I rooted for, things went south. But I had a good foundation of fun and memories. And the memories weren't, you know, looking and waiting for Baseball America's top prospect list to come out. And getting excited about some kid down in single A that you know, I, t- I see people talk about Alvarez, the kitchen, catching prospect. We have no idea if we'll ever see him at a big league level. What's funny about Wilmer Flores, who's beloved, is that everybody knew Wilmer Flores from when he was 16. Because that's when prospect lists, lists were coming out. When they thought, when he was being compared to a young Miguel Cabrera. Remember that? I do. But it even gets worse. Buster Olney has an article out at ESPN today. And here's a quote in there. New GMs generally come with a five-year leashes and five-year plans, and that plan is both demanding and forgiving. They don't have to build five good teams, just one, the one that's playing at the end of the rebuild. That's the problem. And that's why you heard in the opening, well, people are scared of coming here if Steve Cohen's going to put a mandate to win a World Series in three to five years. Well, too bad. Too bad. You're scared. Because the media, well, the industry and the media is playing into it. They just gave you your blueprint. Buster only just gave you in his article what the media deems acceptable. What they deem. So they'll criticize crappy play. They'll criticize pace of play. They'll criticize the product. They'll tear it down. And by the way, they're not all that wrong. You know what? If you, if you want to get to understand the product, buy yourself a Stratomatic game. Play a game from the 80s, play a game from the 90s, play a game from 2018, 2019. You see the difference. I'm not saying it's a bad game. It's a different game. Right there. That's real life. Numbers, real life. So these guys come in and they have an owner in a city that, let's face it, like I said, the media, the pressure, what have you. And they're afraid. Now, I think, and I'm not critic. listen, Martino's just... The messenger. You're all mad at Martino. And he's justifying how, and his quote you heard earlier, well, winning the World Series is not necessarily the goal. Well, it should be. Now, that doesn't mean, because everybody views that comment as a Steinbrenner 80s, 90s Yankees missive. That doesn't mean that you do it irrationally. There was a lot of irrational with George Steinbrenner up until his suspension. There was still irrational George Steinbrenner after his suspension into the 90s, but he had good baseball people that balanced it. And they were very lucky. Let's face it. If 1996 doesn't happen, and there's not a few bounces the way that they went, the history of Yankees baseball is completely different. Because, yes, they probably do trade somebody. They probably, you know, maybe Derek Jeter isn't Derek Jeter. You don't know. Joe Torre certainly is not Joe Torre. He probably gets fired. But even then, as they were rebuilding, as they were trying to get to where 1996 was, they were trying to bring guys in. They brought in Danny Tartable, Mike Gallego. They tried to put players in that not all of them were solutions when they got good, but as they got into 95 and made the playoffs, some of them were there. 
They didn't just completely, you know, collapse. They didn't want to be embarrassingly bad in 91 and 92. Buck Showalter came in and tried to build the culture of winning. And part of that is you could do that with your philosophy and your demands and, and how you play the game. But you need to have the players that can actually do it. You can't have single-A players or players that are checking in, checking out, veterans just to get a paycheck. And now that you don't care what the GM is all about, well, I mean, what the manager's all about, you don't even have that anymore. Well, it's just there to fill out the lineup card and to make sure everybody doesn't you know, go off the reservation. So you, you have none of those principles that were in place for decades and decades and decades where even when you had a bad team, you can start building a culture. Yankees are a perfect example. There's a great book about how the Yankees were built. It was called From Worst to First. It's a chronological and a very well-researched book about the collapse and the rise. And it may be some of the stories you've heard before because, you know, Joel Sherman's written a book about the Yankees and there's been a number of books written about the Yankees in the 96 and whatnot. But it was interesting. They started to build with Gene Michael and got involved in the minor leagues, the draft, the prospects, development. And in that article that I quoted only, development has gone out the window. The Mets have had issues with development. And then they built a culture of winning. So you want to come in, and they're not even coming in a bad situation here. And, and one other thing, I laugh because they talk about how the teams that now are good, the White Sox, the Padres, how the Astros and Cubs were on the time frame. Because there's a, there's a time frame now. Five years is your time frame. And if you follow the schedule, you'll be good in five years. Oh, really? Because last I looked, the Padres haven't been good for 10 before this, and the White Sox nearly the same. And if you take the one outlier season in the early part of the decade of the 2010s, they weren't good until, you know, from the, the last time they were good is when they won the World Series 15, 16 years ago. That's a lot of bad baseball. So is that the time frame? Because it doesn't sound to me that was the time frame. The same guy, the owner of the White Sox, that didn't want the Mets to bring an owner who spends money. So that tells you there was a time frame with Rise Doors, or there was a time frame to, you know, float around. I mean, basically, it sounds like these owners, some of them, they want to have a picnic. I'm going to steal, I'm not going to tell you who told me this, you know, but I, I was talking to someone who's well respected and well known in the game, and they made a great analogy. They want to have a picnic and a game breaks out. And if you make a little bit of money on game day, great. You know, we're not there to have a picnic. It's not about McDonald's family Sundays. It's not about going to go take the kids down the slide or the pitching machine. You think you need to spend 400 bucks to go to an expensive park? I got a park in my neighborhood. I could take the dogs and the family for free. And have it just as good, if not better time. And by the way, not get aggravated when the bullpen blows up in the eighth inning. Or have to struggle my way out of parking. And the food, I could go to the supermarket. I could probably buy much more food than what I would and better quality. So don't give me this plan and all this other stuff. Don't give me promises of the future. Because that's snake oil salesman stuff. That's marketing. That's the sales guy that comes to you in the car dealership. You all hate them, but you know what? There's a lot of you that are supported in baseball. I have to say this. I don't know what's going to happen with Steve Cohen. I don't know how good the Mets are going to be, and they may be as dysfunctional, if not more, just with money for the next five to ten years. But I think they'll be interesting, and I think they'll be entertaining. And his demanding excellence is not a bad thing. But I don't take it as irrational, and that's what scares me about the game's future. Steve Cohen's going to get somebody, and somebody's going to take the job, and somebody's going to take the pressure. Because this is a beautiful ballpark. Think back to those games on the weekend when the Nats were in town two years ago and how pumped the fans were 
and how that environment, how that was, and how we, we did a podcast about that back then, how the fans won the weekend. And that's what you're going to see here if this team consistently competes and wins. And if you tell me they don't win a World Series in the next five years, but they make the playoffs, three of them, they make an NLCS, they give us plenty of moments, I'm not going to demand that, that, that Steve Cohen sells the team. I'm not going to be you know, mortified. I'm going to say, well, let's just keep going at it. What do we need to do to win? Because a bad bounce could happen. I mean, Bill Buckner has a ball rolled through his legs, and the Red Sox don't win a title. It takes them another 18 years. You can't stop bad things from happening. Injuries happen. Other teams win. They play better. You get beat. There's no infallible team. There's no way to predict 100%. Well, it took the Dodgers eight years, so why would it take the Mets three to five? It doesn't matter because the Dodgers, maybe the Dodgers should have won in 2015. You think that they thought that the better team won when they lost to the Mets? They beat the Mets in that series in game five. Maybe it's them playing the Royals, and maybe they win. That had a t- they had a tough team. That Dodgers series was probably the toughest series the Mets have had to win, in my opinion. Maybe since, you know, maybe since the 86 series. That was a tough series. Think about it. And the Mets have been to a World Series since then, but that was one of the tougher teams, tougher, well-played, tight series that, you know, we have seen in a long time from the Mets' standpoint. So I can't get crazy if they don't win. Things happen. You have to put that comment into consideration. You have to put that comment where it's meant to be. You're coming into a great situation, and there's going to be pressure, and there's going to be pressure to perform, and we're going to be disappointed, and we're going to be mad, and you're going to be unfairly criticized. They're already criticizing Cohen. Joel Sherman said the front office, the situation is their first failure. He hasn't even been on the job a month. That's this market. And some of this stuff you have to throw into the garbage. You know what? Some of these columns, don't even read them. They're not worth the price of the paper they're written on or the digital they're, they're printed on, whatever you want to say. But I will tell you this. The fact that you have an owner that wants to go out and compete and win is a beautiful thing. And it's not just about money. It's about what's between the ears. Because if I was an owner, I'd demand the following. You go out there and you respect the fact that these people are paying big dollar. We have to put out a good product. We have to do it in a way that we're not irresponsibly holding us back from success in the future by just mortgaging and putting our chips to the center of the table all the time. But there is a way for you to build a farm system, build a philosophy and structure, and put a competitive team out there. And you know what? Oh, well, it doesn't matter if they're 69 or 77 win team. It does. Because guess what? There's eight or nine dates where your fans went home and your customers went home happy. And maybe there are players, as you build that culture and that environment, that you didn't think would be part of a winning solution that become part of a winning solution. Winning and building winning creates a lot of good. Sitting around for the plan to hatch creates nothing. This is not like putting seeds in the ground and waiting for a tree to grow. There are no guarantees. And Final thing on that column that Buster only put out this morning at ESPN is that the Phillies had a plan, and that plan don't look too good right now. And now they're back to square one. I told you about the Knicks. They've had a few plans in the last two decades. How's that worked out for them? Different sport, same mindset. So please, let this be the last time we have this debate about the importance of winning. Because I'm tired of it, I gotta tell you. And as long as you listen to this podcast, and if you come on this podcast... You have to give me solutions about how we move forward and how we talk about how the Mets could win. 
And sometimes that means taking a step back and trading away a star. It could happen. And it might be the best thing possible. I was the one to say maybe when Wright and Reyes, looking back in hindsight, they should have been traded. But give the Wilpons credit, they didn't want to go completely barren. They wanted to provide a product out there. And I always said that it, was, it hurt them plenty of times, but they never wanted to strip this thing to the bare bones like Houston, like Chicago. Houston's really the one that's stripped to the bare bones. Chicago is a little bit different. A whole different podcast. We could debate these rebuilds so that the cows come home. So that's that. You know what? In the end, Sandy Olison, this is his baby. And he knows what he has to do. And there's plenty of money. And there's plenty of free agents out there. And whether it's the virtual winter meetings or whatever they do now to make trades and, and, and conduct business and transactions, it's going to happen. And the Mets are going to have a team that the expectation is they can make the playoffs. Where they go from there, I have no idea. Because that's all I could expect to get into the tournament and have a realistic chance of winning that tournament. Because once you get in, and that's the thing, whether you're an 82-win team or a 110-win team, once you're in the tournament, you're 0-0 zero and zero, and you got a very thin margin of error, and your starting pitcher and my starting pitcher, they have to perform. And maybe your starting pitcher, who is slightly worse than mine throughout 162 games, is better over the next two weeks, and I go home. No, no shame in that. Doesn't mean you have to start over fresh and find the guy that's going to beat the pitcher that beat me. Means you got to go forward and try to be the guy that the bounces go your way the next time. It's simple as that. All right, let's take a quick break. Mets made a move this week. Non-tenders. What's the next steps here? I went on for almost 40 minutes in the open. I didn't mean to go this far, but I was on a roll. We'll be back with more right after this. With Steve Cohen's infusion of cash, the Mets were in the position where they could tender contracts to players on the bubble uh, rather than non-tender those guys. So when it comes to Steven Matz, Robert Gesellman, Miguel Castro, in another year maybe you do cut bait with players like that, but there's no reason why the Mets wouldn't just roll with that pitching depth, see what those guys can give them in spring training and early in the year, and just keep them because why not? That's one of the advantages of having an owner who didn't lose money on baseball last year. The one surprise is the non-tender of Chase and Shreve, a lefty who can get righties out as well. But other than that, the Mets really did a take on and keep those contracts of guys who might not have been kept in previous years. Andy, uh, why do you think the Mets targeted Trevor May? Well, he's a guy who's very much on trend with uh, the current uh, trend in baseball and bullpens in particular. People always want to know why are the Rays so good in their bullpen. Uh, one of the reasons is they target guys who have one particular breaking ball, often a high spin breaking ball or at least a filthy breaking ball, and they go with that. So May, on that trend, has made a recent tweak here where you can see uh, he completely ditched the curveball this year, way emphasized the slider, what he had before. So what the Twins as an organization do and where Jeremy Hefner comes from is that they know how to identify like, hey, reliever, here's your one plus breaking ball. Throw that as often as possible, and then we'll get you out of the game and bring in someone else so they can throw their one sort of plus breaking ball as often as possible. And Mays turned into one of those guys. Uh, so this, frankly, is a way to build a Twins the Yankees, Dodgers, Tampa Bay Rays type bullpen. It's part of why Brody Van Wagenen brought Jeremy Hefner over and now it's Alderson continuing that same trajectory without a build a contemporary bullpen. All right, we're back. Uh, Talking Mets podcast here and uh, 
I don't usually go off on 35, 40 minute openings, but I was on a roll and, and you know, it's really relevant. That comment that got so much, and you heard the video, uh, the, the audio of the, the Baseball Night New York guys coming in. I mean, this is just such a big problem in baseball. And the fact that the Mets may be a team that's going to pioneer some change here with their owner, not just because they're in New York, because of a mindset, I think is important. It's really important. So... But, you know, where do the Mets go with the roster? So there was the non-tenders, and I think it was important. I always said, I saw so many people say, ah, move away from Steven Matz. He stinks. He's a head case. Guys, lefty, still young. I understand that 2015, 2016 is a long time away. He was pretty solid in the back half of 2019 as a back-end, back-end starter. And Steven Matz, to me, is exactly the kind of back-end starter you want. He's a guy that could give you league average pitching, maybe slightly below. I think he's going to be competitive. Yes, he's going to get clocked sometimes by some good hitting lineups on the road. It's going to happen. And the big key is I think he could give you top-of-the-rotation performances, whereas there's a lot of guys who are fifth starters that can't do that. And if they do do that, do it, it's like Haley's Comet. Mats can give you very good top-of-the-rotation number three performances. Maybe it's not consistent. Maybe it's not for more than a couple of weeks. Maybe it's here and there. But that, to me, is a very good. There's good back in the rotation, guys, and bad. And numbers in totality are not always the same. A 5 ERA is not the same every 5 ERA. There are guys that are really good, and then they have those stinker outings. Bartolo Colon was like that. He'd have a not-so-great ERA. That's because there were days he didn't have it or lineups that he couldn't compete against where it just inflated his ERA, and that was that. I know that there's some issues where Mats gets out of his mechanics, or he's always messing around with, you know, where his foot is, where his head is. I saw the article at, the, at Newsday with Tim Healy, uh, with Phil Regan working with him down in Port St. Lucie. Bottom line is he's lefty. I know it's on the uh, the clock here. This is probably his last chance to make it here. And I understand that there's probably a component that going somewhere else might make sense. And let's remember, if he has a terrible or non-competitive spring training, he might n- not make it out of spring training that still could happen but let's give him a chance and let's see what he got you know depth is important Sandy Alderson talked about that we know depth is important because right now and you saw that throughout the summer during the shortened season the Mets were non-competitive in the rotation once they started losing one two starters you need to go eight to ten deep and right now the Mets need to work on some of that eight to ten deep and by letting a Mats go, and, and I thought about this with Gazelman because I'm not a huge... Gazelman's been one of the biggest disappointments to me because he was so big down the stretch in 2016 when DeGrom went down. And he, and he almost made it where when you lost Harvey and DeGrom that year, I mean, huge losses for that Mets team. And Lugo and, and Gazelman came in and, and did outstanding. He actually was more impressive down the stretch than Lugo. Turns out Lugo's the much better pitcher. And Gazelman didn't even evolve into a decent back-end guy. He's been a spotty reliever. He's been a, a bad starter. Uh, it's kind of peculiar. He doesn't have a role, that's why. But he's depth, and he's an arm. And, and I don't think he'll embarrass himself going out there. Uh, and he's had moments where he's been really good out of the pen, and, and he's been good as a starter. It's, just, it's never been consistent and never, never come all together. Probably that's why he's a 4A guy. But, you know, be that as it may. So where do the Mets go? I was a little surprised that they, and I said this earlier, that Jason Shreve was uh, non-tendered, guy who could go multiple innings, pretty cost-effective, 
can get lefties and righties out. He bridged a lot of gaps on games that the starter didn't go very long. Probably more to that. I don't know if it's all performance-based. Certainly money was in the in play there. And he probably thinks that going out on the market was better than whatever offer that the Mets can uh, provide. With only six roster spots, though, I would say now, you know, Shreve is in there with every— I don't think he's going to get a non-roster invitee. I think Shreve proved that he should get a big league contract, and I would expect him to. I don't think the Mets are going to be the one with six roster spots left. And as I, and I think I give uh, our friend Joe DeMeo credit on this over on Twitter. Our friend Joe DeMeo has his own podcast. I was surprised at Heredia uh, being tendered because he came late in the year, you know, kind of a guy that's bounced around, has some pop, you know, outfielder. But he's right. You know, Joe said the Mets are a little short on outfielders. I know that you could consider McNeil one and J.D. Davis one, but when you talk about straight outfielders, Mets are short on that. And that makes me think, now as I start to look at the 40-man roster and things start to crystallize, it does make sense that they're going after Springer because the only other way you improve the outfield is to bring in depth, Jake Marisnik types. I'm not suggesting bring Marisnik back, but that's what you're you're looking at. If you put Springer out there with Conforto and, and Nimmo, and now that Cano is no longer available, McNeil moves more to the infield, You know, now you have Heredia, you know, maybe J.D. Davis could play a little bit out there. I think he's better at third base. And D.H. Uh, I know Dom Smith could be considered an outfielder. you got some guys that could play multiple positions, but they're really not true outfielders. So if something happens, you know, you don't have many other options. With Marisnik not on the roster, other than Nimmo, you really, you know, Conforto could play center field, but that's not his best position. I mean, give the guy credit. He's played center field probably more than he ever wanted to. And, and based on his uh, scouting report coming up, I mean, you never would have thought Conforto would have been a center fielder. I mean, he was talked about what a butcher he'd be in the outfield, and he's been pretty solid. I, I wouldn't call him a, a butcher. But you have six roster spots, essentially, here. Um, and three of them are going to be taken, I believe, by free agent signings. And if, if you want to go by my desire, you've got Springer, you've got Bauer, you've got McCann, all right? And, and the reason now they're at, those roster spots is because they sign May. So they sign they sign uh they sign Trevor May and it's a good signing. It's it's the kind of let me tell you right now at this point, rather than going pitcher by pitcher, name by name, what I'm gonna give you, and it'll be a good exercise when you have some free time, here's the kind of players they need to use to fill the spots. Because we could debate Trevor May, Brad Hand, Tanaka, Odorizzi, Bauer. The big guys, let's put them out. Those are guys, those are the fish that we want to debate and go after. The secondary market, we can name names, but we got to name the type of players that the Mets need to get to put a competitive roster together. So May, to me, his walk rate is not outstanding, but it's not bad. He's a little home run prone. Every reliever is home run prone. You throw hard and you get one straight or you hang something. It's going to go out in this day and age. Home runs are three-pointers. You got to hit them. Got to hit them. Strikeouts are three-pointers. You got to have them. They're so in high demand that when you don't have those things, you're not in the game. You're not You're not anywhere near the game. You know what I'm saying? So um, uh, you got you to gotta, gotta start right there. Um, the kind of relievers the Mets need to get, whether they're on non-tenders Scrap heap pickups, or they go after guys in the market. Lower walk rate. Yes, I'm okay. I'm 
strikeout rates of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, like what May has, are very desirable. But I cannot have those strikeout rates with four, five, six walks per nine. And that's what you have right now in the Mets bullpen. Guys who walk a ton of guys. Now, they may strike out two per every inning. But you walk a guy, you strike a guy out, you walk another guy, you strike a guy out, and boom, a bloop single, there's your run. You know, walks are disastrous. They're killers. Can't have them. So anybody they go after. That's why I was looking at Tropiano, who they uh, uh, let go. And and that might be a non-tender that you come back on a minor league deal. He seems to have improved his walk rate. Sam McWilliams, a uh, failed starter that looks like they're trying to convert. Not a great, I mean, three per nine. His strikeouts are a little bit lower. But maybe that's a guy who could go a couple innings because he was a starter. I don't know how they look at him. I think that, you know, he's throwing harder. I think they're looking out, out of the bullpen, but I guess we'll see. More of a reasonable walk rate. I mean, now, I mean, three used to be kind of high. I'd like there to be a walk rate between two and three. You look at the good teams like the Dodgers, that's what you get out of their bullpen. You get guys that are two to three walks per nine innings, and they, and they also have the strikeouts. I know that that's, you know, you're looking at Nirvana there, but you got to get guys who don't walk as many guys. Familia, Betances, you know, he's not here anymore. Wilson. Diaz, they all walk too many guys. So, a couple of the names that stood out to me that were non-tendered. Now, I know everybody wants to go big fish, go sign someone like Brad Hand, who very well may want to find a closer job somewhere else. And and let's face it, though, even though Diaz is the closer, uh, you and I both know, based on history, anybody who comes in is going to get some save opportunities. I think they're going to manage him a little bit differently in the sense where, you know, you're not going to have him go multiple innings as much. I think that if he gets out of sync, you may see him take a couple of days. You know, I, I don't think he's guaranteed to close. You saw how they took him out of the role and then put him back in. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets into those bad habits or he gets into those bad periods. Hey, you got to have someone that could, could come in and, and kind of regulate. And maybe if you were a Brad Hand, you'd come in and sign as a free agent and you'll get some opportunities. I mean, it, it you could use two closers. It's not the end of the world. You know, we're, the position is evolving. But Taking a Brad Hand, who's going to be somewhat expensive. You're looking at a guy that's probably going to make $10 million a year here. He's got closer pedigree. If Trevor May is going to make about seven and a half to $8 million a year. A Brad Hand's going to make as much, if not more. Um, Archie Bradley was non-tendered. He's a guy that you know fits that profile right. He has closing experience. Uh, I, I would look at him. I think that's interesting. And I certainly would uh, you know look at other names on the market. And I think they could use a lefty, but in this day and age, with the three-batter rule, I'm not sure you need 100% a lefty, but you could certainly, I mean, that's where handing is desirable because you want someone that could come in and get a Freddie Freeman. You want somebody that could come in and get Bryce Harper out. And righties can do that, and you don't want to just have a crappy lefty just to do it, but is Daniel Zamora the guy that you trust with just basically one pitch to be that guy? I mean, do you really? I mean, I look up and down the roster here, and I'm looking at all the pitchers, and, uh, you know, Drew Smith's a righty. They need a lefty. They absolutely do. Miguel Castro's a righty. Brad Bach is a righty. Um, they need a lefty. And and, I, and maybe that's Steven Matz. I mean, maybe that's where the future holds. I don't want to pigeonhole him as a – I mean, he's a starter. I don't know. I've seen nothing out of him that indicates the bullpen is, is where he needs to go. But be that as it may. So it's probably a lefty. I think that that's where they're going to go and that's where they're going to look. But I would not be comfortable 
with stopping here. I would continue to sign sign non-tenders, and I think they can use one, if not two, bullpen arms that have some experience because very well Lugo might be in the rotation. And if you could get bullpen guys on non-roster invitees as the winter goes out, you got to bring them in because you know you'll figure out the forty-man shuffle at some point. There are guys on here. Who knows what Jacob Barnes is? Who knows what Brad Brock? These are guys that in spring training you might just have to you know bite the bullet and and say take a walk. But um, you know that's where you are with the the bullpen now with the starters. I still think you've got three big fish that you have to fill: catcher position. Starting pitcher, and you know, I said I'll pass on Springer if you could fill the catcher and the starting pitcher. It sounds like Springer is more of their big fish, and then they're gonna go maybe big on pitching with Bauer, but definitely not necessarily real Muto. It seems like McCann would be, and then if it's not McCann, I think it's gonna be. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Thomas Needle gets the job. I wouldn't be surprised at all at that point with maybe a veteran being brought in to to earn a position. So um, with the pitching situation, let's assume they don't get Bauer. You then have to really go out and get one to two, in my opinion, solid starters because you can't rely. Right now, you only have Stroman and DeGrom. Peterson is still a rookie. Lugo, you don't know what's going to go on there. Uh, you have to. He's got to earn a spot. Matt has to earn a spot. Syndergaard not ready day one. Uh, you know, if you bring in a couple of veterans, and maybe one of them is going to have to be somebody that wants to earn a job. I don't know if that's. You know, you got to see how the winter. It's very hard right now because you don't know how the winter is going to play out. And one that has a floor that's higher than a Waka, that's higher than a Porcello, and that's why I think Tanaka Odorizzi are pretty good. Tanaka's got a good postseason pedigree. And he's won in New York. I'm not sure what the situation is there with the Yankees. Odorizzi had a bad year in 2020. I'll throw it out. But if you look at his career where he's fallen, you're going to get league average or better. You weren't getting league average or better when you were with Waka, with uh, uh, with Porcello. And Porcello had a couple outings, but you weren't getting that consistently. So you were non-competitive. Let's face it. Those guys in their starts were non-competitive. And, and if you have a better offense and an elite offense, and I think the Mets do, you can get away with some league average guys who fall to league average or slightly above league average for the middle of the rotation. But they got to fall there. They can't be guys that are below league average that may get you league average, but more than likely you're going to get you know significantly below, and then you're down 6 nothing in the second inning to the Braves. Can't have it. I believe it's not going to be easy. I believe the Mets are in on Bauer. It just seems to be a lot there. I don't think Sandy just makes capricious comments on radio about players if he's not serious. He's not that kind of guy. Not going to be cheap. May impact DeGrom and, and may make DeGrom rethink. Uh, I mean, I think DeGrom's opting out. I think that's why he got a new agency. I think that's a fait accompli. He wouldn't have done the whole agency thing if he didn't want to opt out. But if you go out and get Bauer, in a, and I think he can, he, Patrick Corbin contract, if you look at what Corbin got, what, six years and $140 million? That's pretty much what I think Bauer, you know, is realistically going to get. He compares well. You're in a different type of economy. Some of the big teams uh, are not out there, I think, as aggressive. He's not going to get a $300 million contract like Jert Cole. 
much different situation. I could be wrong. You know, you never know what the Dodgers do, and Toronto's apparently got money. I don't know how, and who the hell else knows has got some money to spend, but I'd be surprised if you got record-breaking contracts that level. And Bauer said he'd sign for a shorter-term deal. Debate on whether or not that's realistic or not, but who knows. So to me, you get Bauer, and then at that point, you have to debate. Do you go more, you know, very, very much a veteran, like an Arietta type, that could come in and prove that he has something left to rebuild his career on a one-year deal rather than go to some of those Odorizzi, Tanaka level? Because I think then you got the veteran that has to prove himself, which I'm not saying he'll be a non-roster, but he'll be incentive-laden type of contract. I think that's where that would go. So that's to me where the pitching is, assuming that you land a Bauer. Because at that point, then you got Bauer, you got DeGrom, uh, you've got Peterson in there. You've got Stroman, you've got Lugo, Matt. That's pretty good six. And then you could build out from there. You know, with you know maybe a veteran in there. You gotta you gotta have six or seven guys, and the two guys that don't make it. You know, that's that's a good problem to have. Not that everybody's got options, but you know maybe a Matt goes to the bullpen. Maybe Peterson goes down to the minor leagues if he doesn't have a good spring. We're putting Peterson in like he's a gimme. I don't put him as a gimme. He hasn't proved that he's a gimme on this whole thing. So let's remember that. Um, the catching, finally, catching situation. I am absolutely fine with James McCann as the catcher. That does not come without some risk. James McCann has had a couple of good years in Chicago. Offensively, he's been a little over-indexed. He's been high batting average on balls in play. So you could argue that maybe his offense is a little bit better. And due to some luck, and I haven't watched him, so I can't say, than it is design of who he is. But I have to think that even with him coming a little bit back down to earth, he's as good, if not better, than at this point in Ramos's career offensively. He's clearly better defensively, and he's worked very hard on being a better defensive player. Uh, I found an article in the... Uh, this was from 2019 in May, so it was early 2019, uh, and it talked about McCann... And it talked about how he was working on becoming a better pitch framer. And he turned out to be a top pitch framer, you know, going in even this year, top pitch framer. Uh, how he used analytics and scouting reports and really studied his craft at a high level so that he could give the pitchers the best chance to go out there and compete and, and have the best outing possible. And we had our friend Rich Mancuso on who talked about um, you know, his reports of pitchers he talked to and how they enjoyed or think McCann is one of the best catchers out there to throw to. And if he's going to cost, you hear, four years, $36 million, that's pretty reasonable compared to, you know, six years, 100 plus million with Real Muto, who I know everyone says no problem on the hip injury. But, you know, guess what? Hip injury is a hip injury. And at some point, it's not going to go away. Carlos Delgado had an issue there, and I'm not saying he's as serious as Delgado, but that's what ended his career. And it was, you know, it started, it was a nagging thing, and then eventually the nagging thing becomes a serious problem, and once you get a serious hip injury, you're not, you're not going to be able to go out there and compete at the level, certainly not at the level you're accustomed to. JT Real Muto is a much better catcher, and he's got, a leadership, he's got leadership qualities I think the Mets could use. Um... But having a hardworking, blue-collar, smart player that embraces analytics, 
pitchers, at least you hear the reports through the grapevine, pitchers like throwing to, even if he gives you not the same offense, but league average offense, I'll keep going back on behind the plate, I will take, you want to have competitive at-bats. A guy who pops some home runs, he's going to strike out a lot, but if he pops you a few home runs, hits 250, uh, has good at-bats, all I worry then at that point is call a good game, do your work on the framing and trying to give the pitchers the best chance to get the highest level of strikes called. Throw some runners out. Part of that is on the pitching staff, and a lot of the Mets pitchers don't hold runners on very well. Syndergaard's one of them. Sometimes DeGrom doesn't do a great job either. Um, but also remember, some of those things, the way that they adjust, or even the pitches they throw, could have been due to the fact they didn't have confidence in Ramos being able to block the ball. Ramos was slow. Uh... And and you know, and I defended Ramos back in uh, the whole controversy with Syndergaard back in the end of 2019. It's like, well, if Ramos was good enough for Scherzer and Strasburg, why is he not good enough for you? And I still stand by that because I don't think Ramos was awful in 2019. But he wasn't great defensively, and his offense has to be at such a level that I don't think he can compete at that level anymore offensively that his defense is much too much of a of a, of a problem. Much too much. You need a good defensive catcher behind the plate. You could sacrifice some offense for that. And at this point in the league, if you look, most catchers, either they're very good defensively and can not hit that well, or they're very good offensively and they're lacking on the defensive side. And you only have a couple of the elite. It's not like you know there's a lot of these guys. So McCann, if he's got a little bit of both, maybe he's not the best defensive in com- comparison. There's some, some gaps there uh, to Real Muto and his offense is better than most, there's your guy. So I'll take that. I have no problem with that. And uh, it's important. I said at the beginning of the offseason, the Mets have to improve up the middle. Part of improving up the middle is better catching, better pitch game calling, uh, a better situation up the middle. I think with Jimenez uh, now in tow, you'll in, and maybe Rosario, Rosario getting pushed. And although I love Nimmo, you, know, you put Springer in center and move Nimmo over, um, you do improve the defense, albeit I'm not sure how much, uh, at least in the short term. You may have an issue in the long term as Springer gets older. But there, you know, there, you know, there's your situation. So I, I think at this point, Mets are going to get two big fish. I think they're going to go after a Springer, and I think they're going to go after Bauer. I think they can get both. I'm not sure if they'll get big, oh, both. I should say reframe that. I'm not sure they'll get both, but I think they could get both. Um, and I think they'll land one for sure. And then after that, you go forward. But that, the things you want to look for over the next few days with the kind of signings the Mets need, again, bullpen guys, look at their walk rate. The strikeouts are important, but look at their walk rate. you got to get guys that know how to keep runners off base. Um, and what is the – where does the starter, the, the, the non-Bower starters, what is their health history and where do they land? Look at what their last three to four years are. What could you reasonably expect? Not that everything has to go right. Not that, you know, last year was an outlier. What, what you could reasonably expect. And if you look at Tanaka and you look at Odorizzi, those are the kind of guys with those resumes. Not always sexy every start. Not, you know, top of the rotation all the time. But more than likely, the worst you're going to get is a number three performance. Sign up. Take it. Because that's You want that to be the floor. The floor can't be five or six. Back of the rotation. The floor has to be in the middle. And you thought you were getting that with Waka and Porcello, and you didn't. And then you got disaster, and away you go. So 
Anyway, so you had me for basically an hour's worth of a monologue, two segments. I hope you enjoyed it. We're setting up the winter meetings. Weird time now, you know, talking about the importance of winning. And it's such an interesting market because we don't know. It's all the historical templates that we have in terms of how uh, teams view players and what players can expect have been completely blown up. You don't have a winter meetings that it's traditional. And... Mets don't really have a front office. <laughs> they don't. So there's a lot of unknowns. So we have to approach how we look at the team a little bit more top line. And, you know, certainly I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. You know, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Send me an email and be here. Maybe there's no, names that I'm missing or names that I haven't put out there that maybe I should investigate and look more into. But that's, you know, how I look at when I'm seeing who the Mets should go after. This is how I was looking at it. I gave you some of the characteristics I was looking for. Of course, you could check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You could send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much any podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Buckle up. It's hot stove season, maybe. We'll be back with another Talking Mets, pod- Talking Mets podcast really soon. Oh, my God. Till then, take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.